Welcome back to the Plenary Session Podcast. This is the podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. Today we're going to be listening to a lecture I gave recently to an elective class I teach. This is on the cost of cancer drugs. I go through some of the data on the crushing and unsustainable price of these drugs. Although there have been some recent modifications, the cost just keeps climbing. It's nowhere under control. And as far as I can tell, that's not going to change anytime soon. But this lecture, I think, will give you some perspective why this is so important. Still remains a vital issue. I encourage you, if you like this, to read the book Malignant. There's just a whole lot more in there. Stay tuned. All right. This is labeled Lecture 5, but it's actually Lecture 4. So thanks for coming. This is on the cost of cancer drugs. Maybe we could talk more broadly about drug cost. This is the fourth and final lecture in this little elective we've been doing here for the medical students. Thanks for coming, either virtually or in person. All right. Well, you know, the obligatory slide to show you in the beginning of any talk on cancer drug price is that the cost per year of treatment is climbing precipitously faster than other classes of medications. The average launch price of a new cancer drug has changed dramatically. You can see that on the right. In 1975 to 79, a new cancer drug launching would be priced at $129 per month of therapy. But by 2000 to 2004, it's 4,700. And at, at 2005 to 2009, it's 7,000. We, we passed 10,000. We're at 15,000 to 20,000 currently. I think 1999 was a seminal year. It was the year Taxol was approved, which was the first blockbuster cancer drug. By blockbuster, I mean it had sales in excess of a billion dollars. Previously, it was thought you could only have sales in excess of a billion if you were something for a very common condition like cholesterol or heartburn. But finally, a cancer drug achieved those sales, not because they expanded the market, some, to some degree they expanded the market because there are more people, but mostly because they increased the price. And so Taxol was the first billion-dollar cancer drug launched, Bristol-Meyer. And here we are now where $1,000 a month per year of treatment is a deal. It's a steal. And we're talking about $430,000 for a single CAR-T infusion of Idacel or Silthacel for myeloma, where the drug cures 0% of people and has a modest PFS, you know, something in the 8 to 25-month ballpark, depending on the product, depending on the study. Uh, that's what we're talking about. So prices are higher than ever. This is a figure that uh, Sean Mylan, Cody, and I put together for Nature Review Review. Uh, in 2015, 2016, with uh, Kevin De Jesus, who was a medical student from Puerto Rico at the time. Um, I think it's an interesting figure because it shows you the median launch price per month of anti-cancer drugs. That's in the blue line over time. And the red line shows you the median monthly household income uh, adjusted for inflation. And this really kind of tells a broader story about our society, and particularly in America, where we've seen relative stagnation in the wages of the average person while we've seen escalating healthcare premiums and escalating drug prices. So you may feel poorer than you felt, or you may feel no richer, uh, but you're certainly spending more on cancer drugs. This is a very interesting figure by, oh gosh, I'm forgetting this researcher's name. She used to be based out of Seattle. Forgive me for that. But what she shows is 
that it's not just the launch price that's a problem. The price of these medications are ratcheted up over time. So these dots are basically showing you the launch price, um, the size of the patient population over time as indications are added, and the uh, changing price year over year, the year over year price increases of serafinib, everlimus, desatinib, pazopinib, imatinib, erlotinib over time. You see everything is marching upward. And it is well recognized in cancer medicine that when you have multiple branded cancer drugs competing for the same market share, the price does not fall. They don't compete based on price. They compete based on other factors. It's a very clever paper by Stacey Dusitzina and colleagues that appeared in Health Affairs. I think it tells a really fascinating story. It looks at imatinib in CML, which is a really good drug. I think I'll tell you why in a second. It shows you the price of one month of imatinib in each of these years. So the launch year, it's almost four grand. It dropped a little bit in 2000. And then it's just had year over year price increases over a decade of market exclusivity. Finally, it became generic. And this purple bar is showing you the generic price reduction. Typically, each generic entrant on the market has a price reduction of 10% of what the branded medication cost uh, at the point of entry. So you can kind of see that here, it's falling. Now there's many more generic entrants and this has plummeted precipitously by 2023. And this is the Mark Cuban, you know, you can get this for, uh, you know, real cheap, uh, the, the Mark Cuban drug company makes this now. So, okay, now it's finally affordable. But what's missing from this story is when the generic launched, sorry, when the generic launched, you were already paying twice as much as what you initially paid for the compound when it first came to market because of the year-over-year price increases. And so even in 2017 with generics, we're still spending more on this product. But here's the better, here's the more complete story. What happened to market share? Market share used to be tied up with imatinib. The blue bar shows you how many people with uh, CML newly treated were getting imatinib. And that market share is really dropping in recent years. So generic imatinib, when it entered, it could only take up a little bit of market share. Why? Because nilotinib and desatinib, two branded TKIs, second generation, they have carved up the market share. Now, why are they more popular? Do you live longer if you take nilotinib? Nope. Do you have a better health-related quality of life if you take desatinib? Nope. Do they have an advantage? Well, they have an advantage on molecular remission rate, but do they have a real advantage on how people feel or function and not some blood test? And the answer is it's never been established. And so this is why um, uh, Anushka, uh, who's a medical student, and I wrote like two essays this year arguing that really imatinib should be the preferred option. It should be preferred option for medical reasons, um, uh, but it also should be the preferred option because it's much more affordable. So what does this mean? This means that like when generics come out in cancer medicine, you're not going to have this windfall of savings because by the time generics come out, the company has already moved the companies have already moved people to the second generation products. So you can't, you know, undercut these products until they become generic. And so what you see is really sustained healthcare spending in this in this sector. This is the two graphs put together. <clears throat> I'll skip this. I mean, you know that by now, uh, this was from, you know, 10 years ago when I started giving this talk. The drugs cost $7 billion per annum, but now we have pembrolizumab, which is pulling down double-digit billions a year. It's going to be the first one, you know, it's already past $100 billion. It might be the first trillion-dollar drug, Pembro, for everything that ails you. This is a graph showing that, yes, as I've shown you before, as competition happens for Gleevec, the price of all the entity marched lockstep together. This was an interesting paper. This was back in the days of Martin Scarelli, 
um, where Sham and I and a couple others teamed up to look at the change in price year over year of a bunch of drugs that were being billed to Medicare. And we noticed that some of the drugs had extreme price drops and some of the drugs had extreme price increases. And we asked, oh, who's increasing the price? Are those the new drugs? But it actually turns out that some of the oldest drugs were undergoing the greatest price increases year over year due to market irregularities such as Martin Scarelli and that um, pyrimethamine, the HIV uh, or the drug that uses to treat an infection that often affects people with HIV. Um, and that was, you may have forgotten already, but that's why that guy got the ire of Congress. All right, I'm going to skip this. Um, <clears throat> this was work that we did about seven years ago that now um, Jordan has replicated, uh, Jordan Milos and I in Jam Internal Medicine, but it basically asks the question, does the price have anything to do with the benefit, the innovation, and the costs of the medication? This figure shows the percent of cancer drugs uh, that are novel mechanism, 40%, and the percent with uh, a next-in-class mechanism, a Me Too drug, 60%. And it turns out there's no difference in price between those two drugs. They're all around, they were around $100,000 per year of treatment. Now they're like $180,000 per year of treatment in our updated paper. If you break drugs out based on the regulatory basis of approval, response rate, PFS, and OS, there's no correlation between the basis of regulatory approval and the price. If anything, the response rate drugs look like they're more expensive, even though arguably they have the least evidence to justify their use. You've seen this figure. And I could have so easily shown the figures that Jordan made. They're basically the same story, which is that there's nearly no correlation between the percent improvement in PFS and OS and the drug price. The price is really anchored to what the previous launch prices were, which is really anchored to what the market will bear. So I think it's hard to justify cost of drugs by novelty, by the R&D expenditure, which I'll show you in a second, the regulatory endpoint used for approval, the improvement in the endpoint. Um, it is not justified by the benefits or value it's provided. It's really justified by what the U.S. market is willing to tolerate. Now, what about value? Um, we talk a lot about value in healthcare, but what exactly is it? It is some Your ratio. Audio cut out. Did it cut out? How about now? Give me the thumbs up. Michael can't hear me. Okay, thumbs up. Everyone else can hear me. What about value? Value is some ratio of the benefits a drug provides mitigated by the cost and toxicities. Um, value in oncology is uh, uh, sometimes even clearer to ascertain because we've done randomized trials measuring survival where we haven't for other products. So for instance, you know, Paxlovid in vaccinated people, um, some people think it's going to show a benefit in pa panoramic. Some people think it won't. I would put my money that it won't. Uh, but even the people who think it will have a benefit, if you look at real world data, the cost to avert a hospitalization using the optimistic observational data, which is probably upwardly biased and confounded, but that cost effectiveness is about $500,000 to avert a hospitalization, not to add a year of life. So it's already looking like it has very poor um, dollar per quality or dollar per quality adjusted life year. Okay, I should just introduce that concept really quick. Um, a dollar per quality adjusted life year is basically how much money it costs to give somebody a year back of good life. And that is commonly used as a metric to compare disparate interventions and see which is more valuable. Um, a year of life with some disability is typically mitigated. It has some discount. It's like a year of lung cancer life is maybe 0.85. It's not, it's not a perfect year of life. But, so, but it may surprise you to see that it's actually pretty close to a perfect year of life because living with disability is often um, 
much more desirable than able-bodied people think. Uh, and so people who are uh, suffering from some cancer or some disability value their life uh, uh, quite highly. And I think that's something that people miss. Um, to, and, and similarly, people may say, you know, if I get to some point, I, I don't want to go on if they have some disease, but often when they get to that point, they do want to go on. So one's perspective can change. Um, so that's what dollar per quality is briefly. <clears throat> I show this figure. Oh, I show this figure. Uh, I think I've shown it before in this class. Maybe not. Maybe not in this class. But basically, this is a figure from the Swedish group. Let's just look at women for instance, just take this example. This shows you what happens if you were diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia in 1974, 84, 94, 04, and 2014. And the yellow bar tells me if you're a 55-year-old woman, how many years of life do you expect to live? That's the yellow bar. The blue bar tells me if you're a 55-year-old woman in that same year and you didn't get that diagnosis, how long do you expect to live? That's the blue bar. That's the life expectancy. The gap between the yellow and the blue is the years of life lost. And closing the gap is a remarkable success story in medicine. And the gap is largely closed because of imatinib. And I think that's what great drugs do. They actually nearly close a 20-year of life gap. But because of price increases in 2016, even though imatinib was such a wonder drug, the dollar per quality was $72,000. So you can think of that as some benchmark. I think many nations like the UK for many years, they said the threshold to pay would be the dollar per quality of something like a year of renal dialysis, which was roughly in the $50,000 ballpark. There's some American economists who are more willing to spend, and they've typically said the society should spend you know, $100,000 or $200,000 per quality life year added back. Having said that, the reality is that we spend way, way more than that. <clears throat> the average cancer drug shown here, has like an improvement in survival of 2.3 months of PFS on the top, 2.1 months of overall survival on the bottom. And as a result, the value proposition is exceedingly poor. Pertuzumab is $735,000 per quality. Regorafenib, $900,000 per quality. And a Flibercept is actually infinity because there's an alternative that was cheaper, certainly at the time it launched. A Flibercept has since had some discounts. So we're spending, you know, million dollars per quality, which is something that no sane society would do. Um, and we're and largely because there is no system in the United States to prioritize products based on the value they provide. We do ration care. I mean, one of the criticisms is that, you know, other nations are rationing care. We ration care too. Rationing care just means that not everyone can get all that they would like or all that somebody would want to give them. Um, we do that too. Other nations do it often based on some central authority that prioritizes valuable interventions over less valuable ones. We do it based on all the classic ways to discriminate against people, people who are not born in this country, who are undocumented, who don't have secure insurance, who may have volatile jobs. Affordable Care Act corrected some of these things to some degree, but there's still tens of millions of Americans who are uninsured or underinsured. And so it remains to be a problem, and we ration care in that way. And I think anyone who rotates at the general and the VA and Parnassus will see that there is some rationing going on. Um, and it not, doesn't always mean that you're depriving people of good drugs. You're also sometimes giving rich people drugs they don't benefit from. So it, we have both errors, I think, in the American system. <clears throat> I'm going to skip this for the sake of time. I actually think these value propositions that I show you are even worse than I've described 
for the simple reason that the drugs don't work as well in pivotal trials as they do in the real world. I showed you that 2.1 months, that's coming from trials. What about the real world? The real world, the drugs don't do as well in part because real world patients are very different than trial patients. This is an old figure from the FDA, but it's been repeated now half a dozen times by other groups, always with the same result. If you look at Americans, the tall bar tells you that most are over the age of 65, most are over the age of 70, most are over the age of 75. But if you look at the percent of people enrolled in trials submitted to the FDA over these ages, it's much less. At every age cutoff, you have fewer people enrolled in trials than there are in the general community. Our trials don't look like average Americans. Our trial patients are healthier. They have fewer comorbidities. They have better bilirubin. They have better creatinine. They have better platelets. They need fewer transfusions and they're younger and they're often healthier and they have higher socioeconomic status and they're more likely to be white. I mean, all of these things are differences between the trial and the real world. And the moment you translate the results from the trial to the real world, you don't get bigger benefits. You don't even get the same. You get a deterioration of the benefit. That's shown here. This is a nice paper. Uh, well, on the left, you see the pivotal trial results of serafinib versus placebo in the SHARP study, which is now 15 years old, New England Journal paper. And you can see that this drug has you know, some real but modest improvement over placebo. On the right, you just see the blue curve is everybody in Medicare who got serafinib. That's blue. And the red line shows you a propensity score matched group that's otherwise similar, but they didn't get it. They had the same propensity to get it, but they didn't get the drug. And it has about the same, showing no survival benefit in the real world. But to me, the bigger take-home point is that people who took sugar pill on the control arm of this study, they lived twice as long as people who took the drug in the intervention arm of life. You know, People who actually took the drug in Medicare live four months. Here they're living eight months on placebo. So our trials are so unrepresentative that if you take sugar pill on the trial, you're going to have twice the survival of somebody who's taking the, the real drug in the real world. That speaks poorly of how we're running trials. I don't think it's gotten much better. If anything, fewer people are probing this question. So, I mean, we talk a little bit in this class and elsewhere about surrogate endpoints, like your blood cholesterol is a surrogate endpoint, your A1C is a surrogate endpoint. These are things you measure that don't directly translate into living longer or living better. Well, what about overall survival in clinical trials? Well, surely that's a hard clinical endpoint, right? Well, we wrote this paper saying overall survival in cancer drug trials, maybe that's the new surrogate endpoint for overall survival in the real world. And our argument was that the purpose of drug development and approval in the US is to approve drugs that improve outcomes for people in the US. Most cancer drugs have marginal benefits as I've shown you. A marginal drug in an ideal population may have no benefit in a U.S. population, as I've shown you. And so if you're really asking the question, is overall survival in a trial, does that mean overall survival in America? No, maybe it's just a surrogate for it. Maybe it should be subject to the same sorts of correlation studies as we do for any surrogate. And maybe there should be post-marketing trials, randomized, that look more pragmatically. And elsewhere in Nature Reviews, we probe this, uh, asking if the recovery study can be adapted to medicine. The other point I want to make here is that this is what people really think of as the efficacy effectiveness gap, that things look like they have efficacy in trials and idealized circumstances, but they don't have effectiveness in the messy reality of the world. The next thing I'll make it I'll say is that some people think you need observational studies to measure effectiveness. You don't. You could also do a randomized trial with just no inclusion criteria or one that really just re re recruits everybody. 
gives everyone a fair shake, doesn't just run at Parnassus, but runs everywhere, the community, rural communities, not, not just urban enclaves. So, you know, that kind of trial that runs broadly will give you an, a measure of effectiveness. So it doesn't have to be non-randomized. How much do these drugs cost to make? Um, perennially debated. The Tufts group says it costs $2.6 billion to bring a drug to market. They don't tell you what drugs they're using because they have entered into confidentiality agreements with the manufacturer for the data. So we wanted to come up with a way to estimate the cost to bring a drug to market um, that used public data. So we picked, we picked 10 companies in oncology over the last decade or more that had no other drugs on the market and they brought one drug to market. This category shows you how many other drugs they had in development, three, four, two, three, 11, Exalexis had 11. Um, by development here, I mean human trials because they have many more drugs in preclinical pipeway. Um, it tells you the number of years from their first preclinical study to drug approval, which roughly is on par with what people think the industry average is seven to eight. Um, and it, here we sum up the R&D expenditure for the whole company, not just for this drug, for the whole company for all of the years they were developing the product. And I think then, and one more, um, that's summed up here. This is from SEC filings. We actually give them a 7% loss of capital per year. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you put $100 million into the company 10 years ago, that's $100 million you didn't invest in the stock market. So assuming you invest in the stock market, you get 7% return per year. We'll give you credit for the 7%. We'll give you that. That's how much you're really spending because you lost that opportunity. So we put that in here. And then we also look at how much revenue have they made post-approval? And long story short, we estimated that it was around $800 million to bring a drug to market, which is not nothing, but it's also not $2.6 billion. And here in this figure, I show you the revenue post-approval compared to the R&D expenditure for the whole company, for the whole drug development uh, saga. And what you can see is the revenue post-approval is colossal. And this is early in the study. For instance, Seattle Genetics, by now, the revenue post-approval is massive. And they just got bought by Pfizer, $43 billion. And they got bought by Pfizer because Pfizer had so much cash in their pocket, they didn't know what to do with the cash. Can't trust the banks. This is what's happened in Silicon Valley. And why did Pfizer have so much cash in their pocket? Because we gave them $10 billion for Paxlovid, even though there is not a single positive randomized study in vaccinated people or boosted people. So these problems really do intertwine low evidence hurdles, ease to get to market, and then just tons of money until it burns a hole in your pocket. Okay. This is a tranquil photo of what life was like in Portland, Oregon. It's actually an unrepresentative photo. It's mostly raining there. When I was there, it's always raining. It's an old slide. I should put one of San Francisco. I should put one of a clean sidewalk in San Francisco, which is also unrepresentative. <laughs> unrepresentative San Francisco. All right. <clears throat> I want to talk about this. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. I haven't done this in a long time. A few years ago, there was a drug, breast cancer drug called neratinib. It was approved for the adjuvant treatment of breast cancer. It means you cut out the breast cancer, give a woman a drug. It was a very unusual drug because it was first approved in the adjuvant setting and only later was it approved in the metastatic setting, which almost never happens. It's the only time that ever happened in a paper that Eddie Maldonado, who's a fellow here, did, JAMA Network Open, I think. This was the benefit. Look at that. You should be giving a standing ovation because this is what game changers look like. If you give one year of neratinib, you're that much less likely to have an invasive disease-free survival event than if you didn't. Look at that. Look at that survival. Look at that curve. 
You can fit easily one laser pointer between that. And if you can fit the laser pointer, you can give the plenary at the national meeting because that's a winner. That's what we call game changer. But it's a toxic drug. Damn, this slide has been readjusted. But basically, neratinib has a 40% grade 3, 4 diarrhea. What is grade 3, 4 diarrhea? It's an increase in seven stools per day over baseline. I always point this out, just how horrible it is. You're a woman who has this kind of survival, like amazing, and then somebody puts you on a drug where you're going to the bathroom, whatever you're going, seven more times, you're going to the bathroom eight times a day. Your whole life is revolving around going to the bathroom. I mean, this is horrific. Why would anyone think this, this, this is not even overall survival? This is an invasive disease-free survival. This drug is crazy. The thing I always like to show is these were three adjuvant studies in breast cancer. One was the one I just showed you. Another was pertuzumab, the addition of pertuzumab to trastuzumab, which is a post-marketing and positive study. And one is a study that is a negative trial called Z11, where actually it's the reason why we don't do an axillary nodal dissection. Without looking at the answer key, does anyone know which is the negative study? And which are the two positive studies? And if you're not watching, if you if you can't see this picture, it's 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 really remarkable because they all look the same. Okay, they all look the same, but A and B are positive and C is negative. Why is A positive and B positive and C negative? Z11 is negative, and the answer is just sample size. They're running in a few thousand people in A and B, so they have the power to detect a sliver of benefit. And in C, they're running it in a few hundred people, so they don't have power to detect a difference. But what it really tells you is that in breast oncology, we are stopping doing things for benefits just as big as we're starting to do things only because the manufacturer decided to throw some more cash and increase the sample size. It's really sort of a schizophrenic field when medical decisions are based not by the magnitude of benefit, but based on whether or not you cranked up the sample size. You're really abdicating the responsibility of a doctor to make the decision and a doctor and a patient to the company to crank up the sample size. I think it's really remarkable. All right. <clears throat> I'm going to close with this example, <clears throat> and then I'm going to stop. Okay, you know, a few years ago, a few years ago, I uh, had a lot of patients who came and they said, "Doctor, what do you know about turmeric?" And I said, "Is that stereo? Is that a is that stereotype? Because I'm Indian, you should know about turmeric." And I was like, "Well, as a matter of fact, I do know a lot about turmeric. I know." You heat the skillet with oil. You add the mustard seeds when they pop. The next thing you want to add is coriander, fenugreek, turmeric, a little bit of curry leaves. That's what you really want right in the hot oil. Just let it sizzle a second. Maybe some ginger, maybe some garlic, depending on the food. Maybe not. Maybe go some asafoetida later. Then you throw the onions. Then you throw the food. I mean, this is how you, this is cooking 101, okay? I know a lot about turmeric and it tastes delicious. But they're saying, that's not what, that's not my question, doc. My question is, if I swallow gel caps of turmeric, will it slow my CLL? I said, oh my God, no, I don't think so. I don't. Swallow gel caps of turmeric? No, I, uh, I, I, I'm actually a believer that turmeric might have some beneficial health effect, but not when bolus after you have cancer. I just don't think the bolus delivery is the right delivery. But then I got thinking, you could take all the spices in my cupboard shown here and, uh, and uh, put them all in gel caps, really, and you could swallow any one of them, right? You really could swallow any of those spices and you could think maybe it's helping you. So how bad is the situation for right now? Four things you need to know. One, I told you the FDA will approve drugs based on one trial, surrogate endpoints, no lower limit of benefit. That's true. 
Two, the drugs make a lot of money. Median uh, revenue post-approval, this is from the WHO, $10 billion, 12 years of marketing approval. That's the, that's the median of all the cancer drugs. We run large duplicative trials agenda with little rationale. We're running 2,000, 4,000 studies of PD-1 drugs. We've got 20 different PD-1 drugs already approved. We've got, uh, let's see, nivolumab, uh, pembrolizumab, durvalumab, atezolizumab, simiplumab, avalumab. Uh, oh, and then the like three other ones that I'm forgetting. Um, we got a lot of PD-1s already approved. They're not really different from each other. And then finally, the p-value. The p-value is really the probability of getting a result this extreme or more extreme, assuming the null hypothesis that you're sampling from the same distribution. If you reach your hand in a jar full of M&Ms and pull it out twice, one handful, you get four yellows. The next handful, you get six yellows. The p-value is the probability that you would have seen that difference or more extreme difference just by chance alone. But we already know it's chance alone because you're putting your hand in the jar of M&Ms. Okay? The p-value assumes the null. So let's assume all those drugs in my spice cap, all those spices in my spice cabinet don't help cancer, but I put them all in gel caps and I run a hundred randomized studies. And let's say hypothetically for the sake of simplicity, I use a one-tailed p-value of 0.05. That means that if these drugs really don't work out of a hundred studies, how many studies will find a benefit? Back to the spice cabinet. Of a hundred trials, five would be positive by chance alone, p-value one-sided 0.05. And then you start to think to yourself, what kind of crazy person would do such a study? Cost a fortune to run it. Let's just say it cost 22 million to run each of those studies. It would cost me $2.2 billion to run a portfolio of cancer drug trials with five false positive results. But what do I get for each false positive result in a world where there is no lower limit of efficacy, in a world where you only need one positive randomized control trial? What do I get for five false positive results? What I get is $12 billion, $10 billion, which is what the WHO grew. So what that means is, this is the tricky concept. This is a figure that shows you pick what the cost of a phase three randomized trial is. And this is the break-even point. In other words, how much money you have to make per drug approval to run a portfolio of trials for an inert substance. And the answer is current revenue is far in excess of the threshold. In other words, if you had enough capital and enough inert drugs and you ran enough trials you will turn a profit in today's marketplace. You'll get some false positives and you will turn a profit. That doesn't mean you have helped anybody. And this is, I think, one of the biggest problems with the current system is we give so much reward in terms of, in terms of dollars that we have incentivized companies to, to test low-value products, things that they really don't think are that promising. I actually, quote, I do not think companies are actually testing useless drugs, but what I do think is they don't have to be much better. They don't have to be much better than useless to turn a profit. And I think that is a problem in the current system. The incentives are too great. What would I do to fix it? I think two studies, not one study would be a help. I think specifying minimally clinically important differences would be a help. I think more and better randomized trials would be a help. Representative randomized trials would be a help. Those are my solutions. So I'm gonna stop the recording so we can do questions in, in anonymity. Thank you.